0: The Ottoman Empire was a country, and technically a caliphate, the last official Sunni Islamic state governed by a leader with the title caliph, which means someone who is considered to be the governmental religious successor of the Prophet Muhammad, and thus the head of the entire Muslim community worldwide. The Ottoman Empire was a big deal because of its position as the head of this massive global religion, but also because of how sprawling it was in terms of land and wealth. Initially founded by the Turks, the country took on a more Persian character after its early conquests in southeastern Europe, western Asia, and North Africa, leading up to the 14th century. A few hundred years later, at the apex of its power, under a leader named Suleiman the Magnificent, who ruled over about 5% of the planet's population at the time, about 25 million people, had expanded the reach of the empire further into the west, ruling portions of eastern Europe alongside the rest of his massive realm, reportedly keeping Western European rulers on edge, constantly worrying that he could decide to just steamroll over the whole of the continent at any time, though he was, despite his reputation as the head of the most feared military power in the region at this time, a lot more focused on investing in Ottoman arts and culture and learning. Suleiman is known for having been militarily feared but also for having lorded over the nation during its cultural height, something that he's purported to have brought about personally. And he was so associated with this surge in Ottoman culture that when he died, there was a common assumption that the empire, too, would not be long for this world. Part of this assumption, it was later learned, was due to the misinterpretation of what was happening in the area literarily by those who documented the next steps for Western audiences. After Suleiman's death, future sultans of the empire were keen to make changes to how things operated, including becoming more conservative in their ideals and more insular and stern in their interpretation of their faith. The writers of the era, wanting to maintain the relative openness that existed under Suleiman, wrote what amounted to speculative fiction, sometimes referred to as decline fiction showing what would happen if these rulers kept going the way they were going. Western scholars later analyzed these works and took them as an indication that things actually did start to decline after Suleiman the Magnificent's death. But this was later found to be untrue. Things changed, but the Ottoman Empire continued to be dominant and fairly rich with culture of various sorts for another century After which point, in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, the empire experienced a decline in military capability, in part because of several decades of peace. They had kind of conquered everyone in their immediate vicinity at this point, and were more focused on managing their vassal states than keeping their soldiers and weaponry in tip-top shape. Thus, the Habsburg Europeans and the Russian Empire had the chance to catch up. And in the 18th and 19th centuries, the Ottomans were defeated several times by these nearby foes, leading to a period called the Tanzimat, or reorganization, during which the Ottoman Empire undertook a series of significant reforms, beginning in 1839 and completing nearly 40 years later in 1876, with the emergence of a constitutional monarchy, replacing the prior sultanate that they'd had since the beginning of the nation. This segue into a constitutional period was not fully planned. Initially, they merely intended to modernize their military and upgrade their economic systems to better compete with their European and Russian opposition. But the other changes emerged naturally as part of those other upgrades. They wanted, for instance, to stem the tide of nationalism that was emerging within their borders amongst their non-Turk, non-Muslim countrymen. To keep those tides from becoming tsunamis, they liberalized their laws and instituted constitutional reforms that led to a modern conscripted army, upgrades to the banking system, the replacement of religious Islamic law with secular law, the introduction of modern factories to replace their existing guild system. They outlawed slavery and the slave trade, established an academy of sciences, set up their first telegraph networks, set up a press and journalism code, opened up their first post offices, guaranteed civilians perfect security for their lives, honor, and property, and they even decriminalized homosexuality. Despite these substantial shifts on an array of issues, shifts that, according to dominant liberal democratic Western standards at least, would seem to have been a step in the right direction, even going beyond what many European governments were offering at the time in many regards, the Tanzimont failed to keep the Ottoman Empire from decline. And that's in part because there were many interests within the country that didn't want these changes and didn't want to give up the superiority that they enjoyed in terms of class, in terms of religion, in terms of economic position, but also because of continuing conflict with external forces, especially the Russians, with whom they had fought many conflicts and who decisively defeated the Ottomans in the Russo-Turkish War of 1877 through 1878, which in turn led to Bulgaria, Romania, and Serbia and Montenegro peeling away from the empire one by one, followed by Austria-Hungary stepping in and occupying Bosnia-Herzegovina and Novi-Pazar, the latter of which was made up of parts of modern-day Montenegro, Serbia, and Kosovo. Despite another reformation period in the late 19th century, instigated by a group called the Young Turks, The Ottoman Empire lurched toward dissolution in the early 20th century. It lost all of its North African territory in the Italo-Turkish War of 1911, all of its remaining European territories during the Balkan Wars of 1912 and 1913, and barely fended off a series of coups in the years leading up to World War I, a war that they entered when they launched a surprise attack on the Black Sea coast of Russia in October of 1914 which led Russia and its allies, France and Britain, to declare war on the Ottomans, who held their own for a while, but who were eventually defeated in 1918, leading to the partitioning of the state by the Allied victors. They carved it up into the modern Arab world, an arrangement of countries that some speculate, with pretty good historical and strategic reason, were arranged as they were to ensure that folks in the so-called Middle East would always be at each other's throats, rather than unifying and causing trouble for the nations surrounding them in the future. This may, of course, just have been an unfortunate side effect of all of the political gamesmanship that was taking place in this region after the war, with each of the major victorious powers trying to create regions that would be more loyal to them, giving them access to resources and people who they could benefit from in various ways in the future. It's very possible that future conflicts of which there have been many were just accidental emergent properties of such great game playing rather than a conscious effort to keep the pot stirred for security purposes. In either case, the Balkanization of this region mimicked in some ways the Balkanization of the actual Balkan region from whence the term Balkanization is derived, which itself was also part of the Ottoman Empire but which was partially extracted from the larger empire leading up to World War I, and which was fully removed in the years following the war, leading to the creation or the recreation of numerous countries, including Albania, Bosnia, and Herzegovina, Bulgaria, Kosovo, Montenegro, and North Macedonia, with portions of Croatia, Greece, Italy, Romania, Serbia, Slovenia, and Turkey also technically included on the Balkan Peninsula. Though that latter group is not always included in the common use of the term Balkans today. When we talk about the Balkans, we're generally referring to an idea as much as a reality, and the reality is that this is a region in which a bunch of countries have been broken into smaller and smaller countries, each of these neighbors, though at times living peacefully alongside each other, having some kind of historical, cultural, or religious beef with those just across the border. As a consequence, there are a higher than average number of fairly brutal conflicts in regions that have been balkanized, very much including the Balkans. And the implication is that this is a consequence, not just of people behaving badly, but as a result of the intentional fracturing of a region done in such a way that conflicts are nearly inevitable. So the Ottoman Empire was balkanized on a grand scale, but we didn't have that term until one of the fractured pieces of the former Ottoman Empire was itself broken into even smaller bits, those bits becoming a hotbed for incredibly violent and vicious conflicts on a shockingly regular basis. What I'd like to talk about today is another type of balkanization that is taking place on a far larger stage and which could lead to very different types of conflict in the very near future. listening to Let's Know Things, I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from The Economist, and it's entitled, Countries Are Increasingly Willing to Censor Speech Online. This piece begins with a mention of certain politicians here in the United Kingdom, where I'm living at the moment, wanting to ban claims made on the internet, and more specifically on Facebook and other social networks. Claims about measles vaccines and other types of vaccines causing autism, a claim that has been thoroughly debunked over and over again, and which was originally based on retracted papers published by a single scientist decades ago, a man who is no longer a scientist because he faked data to try to support his pre-research assumption, which, to say the least, is not how science works, but which is apparently great for birthing widely believed conspiracy theories. In any case, the belief that vaccines are in any way connected with autism, and perhaps to other things as well, and that the government is covering this up for some reason has led to outbreaks of diseases like measles around the world, even in places where such diseases were previously controlled or eliminated, something that is more than a little bit alarming for the folks in charge of making sure that there are not anachronistic pandemics breaking out in their jurisdiction. This belief that big tech companies like Facebook and Google should be forced to remove certain types of content flies in the face of some of the core beliefs held by many people in the American tech world in particular. Beliefs that could be broadly described as techno-libertarian and which generally include, perhaps even foremost, before all the others, that you do not censor the internet. The internet is for sharing information. Information wants to be free. And if that means we have the dark web and pockets of child pornography and pirated everything and misinformation and disinformation and malinformation permeating even the most mainstream portions of the web, well, that's just the price we pay for having free speech. You cannot censor conspiracy theorists making wild and sometimes harmful claims without also potentially censoring people who are fighting for their civil rights in the face of oppression from their government. And you cannot give platforms to people who are banging the drum for action against climate change without also giving platforms to white supremacists, or so the argument goes. And that argument has come to define the shape of the modern internet, especially social networks, and it eventually gained support in the shape of Section 230 of the U.S. Communications Decency Act, an act that was initially forwarded as an attempt to ban pornography and other quote-unquote indecent materials from the internet, ostensibly to protect children from such things, but which was quickly shut down after the American Civil Liberties Union brought a case against it saying that it was immensely anti-freedom of speech and thus unconstitutional. The U.S. Supreme Court agreed and ruled in their favor, in the court case Reno versus the ACLU, resulting in the culling of pretty much all of the act, except for a few key sections, like the aforementioned Section 230. Now, Section 230 was a set of provisions that, while not limitless, do very broadly protect internet-based platforms from being punished things posted or published by users on those platforms. So YouTube, for instance, could not be held legally accountable if one of their users posted something racist or pornographic on their service. This set of provisions is considered to be the main reason the modern internet was able to come into being. Lacking these protections, it would be financially unviable. For most Web 2.0 websites to have come into existence, Web 2.0 having been defined by the dynamism enabled by upgrades in code and web standards, so that you could, for instance, leave comments, publish blogs, and other things of that nature. And for the descendant technologies and platforms, like essentially all of social media, including those housed primarily or exclusively in apps, to exist either. They all have their heritage in that Web 2.0 era. The risk of being sued into oblivion because you couldn't catch all of the offensive or illegal stuff being posted was just too high. It would not have been a sustainable model for anyone. This shaped the path the US tech industry took, but it also largely shaped the perception of the internet and the sorts of things that happen on the internet around the world more broadly. There were outliers and a few countries here and there that did but they could to censor things they didn't like, or to restrict content they thought was offensive for portions of their population. But they were largely unsuccessful in their efforts, with the exception of China, which I'll talk more about in a moment. Aside from that one big exception though, most attempts to censor were augmentations to the fundamental structure of the internet. The internet as a whole operated according to the United States ideological principles, and the rest of the world could try to make tweaks here and there, had a coat of paint, but the basic package was still in place, and their changes could usually be bypassed without too much trouble, much like the child protection software installed on school computers, something that students typically have very little trouble figuring out how to bypass. These localized solutions likewise banned pornography or news about the ruling caste or wherever else, but were almost always just a VPN or clever IP address trick away from being little more than expensive do not pass signs that few people bothered to heed. There have been many changes to this dynamic in the past decade, but the biggest, I would argue, was the passing and implementation of the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, across the European Union. The GDPR was promoted as a somewhat sprawling piece of data privacy legislation meant to curb the aggressive data vacuuming tendencies of big tech companies, especially those coming out of the United States which have proven to be the most consistently successful, but also the most reliant on advertising, and thus data that allows them to more coherently and specifically target people with advertising, tech companies in the world. The EU decided that this was not okay, and because they could not easily or completely change the internet at its fundamental level, they decided to attempt to tweak these tech behemoths' behavior by mandating what they could and could not, Hoover Up, The GDPR also lays out how these companies can and cannot handle data that they already have, how they secure that data, and several other provisions that all tie back to stripping away some of the power these companies have over this sort of information, returning some of that power to the people from whom it was originally collected. That is the intention, anyway. Many a tech world think piece has pointed out that the GDPR has also stripped away some of the many benefits of an open internet, like the ability to speak truth to power and the ability to write down instances of bad behavior in ink. It's possible for a European Union citizen to contact these companies and have them remove information about themselves, including archived newspaper articles. Even if those articles document heinous crimes committed by that person and that person is requesting their removal potentially so they can go on and commit more crimes. The article will generally still exist somewhere but will cease to be as findable. It will no longer be available on Google search results, for instance, which can mean for most practical purposes that it no longer exists on the web, which is absolutely a concern. But like most things, the reality here is a lot more nuanced than either side typically makes it out to be. Is the GDPR cumbersome and imperfect, and does it create some new problems alongside the problems that it seems to solve? Yes. But has it also moved the ball, at least a little bit, in terms of who holds the power when it comes to who collects, manages, and profits from our personal data, potentially staunching the growth of certain types of abuse? Also yes. So what the EU is doing here, on the macro scale, is building a new internet. Their portion of this global ecosystem is being reshaped by laws that they have passed that help them find companies that don't play ball. And because their market is so massive, very few companies are willing to just leave that money on the table. They would rather either build an EU-specific version of their offerings, which comply with these rules, or they adjust their entire product or service to ensure it complies, a choice that as a byproduct makes the rest of the world comply with these EU regulations as well, a leveraging of their economic soft power. As I record this episode, the United Kingdom is still a part of the European Union. You may have heard that the UK may be leaving the EU in the near future, though that future has been pushed back several times already, and who's to say what will happen with this next deadline that has been set? And if and when that does happen, there is a good chance that the GDPR will no longer be implemented here in the UK. It is the EU's mandate not that of the British people, and thus they will almost certainly come up with their own version, tweaking a small number of things or a great many things as part of their effort to distinguish themselves from the mainland to show that they are now truly separate. Now, the UK already has what is called the Data Protection Act of 2018, which is currently a supplement to the GDPR, but which would almost certainly become the main law of the land in this space or the foundation of a new version of the law of the land after a successful brexit but because the uk's standards would not be precisely the same as those in the eu unless the uk successfully negotiated a special treatment deal on their way out the transmission of data out of the eu into the uk along with the transmission of many physical goods would no longer receive their current privilege and as such some online services would be limited or blocked entirely. According to a recent study done by a university college in London, for instance, the school found that their email system would no longer work post-Brexit because it's based on Microsoft Outlook, which itself only operates because data is able to freely move between servers in the UK and servers in Ireland, which is part of the European Union. The EU has said that in the event of a successful Brexit, they would assess the UK for quote-unquote adequacy under their GDPR-driven protections, just like they would for any other non-EU country. But in the past, this assessment process has taken between 18 months and 5 years, a long time to live with a bunch of small, annoying problems caused by this sort of digital fracture, and a very long time to deal with more significant problems of the same variety. This creates a very similar dynamic, if for very different reasons, as the ongoing row between China and the rest of the internet. The Chinese government, originally helped online by liberal democratic entities that thought being exposed to the rest of the world would liberalize and democratize the one party authoritarian country, instead showed itself to be more than capable of doing something that was thought to be impossible back in the halcyon days of the internet. They partitioned it off and censored whatever they liked within their great firewall defended portion of cyberspace. Because their censorship efforts have been so successful, this has allowed them, of late, to essentially take potshots from atop their walls, messing with the rest of the internet's online information sources while maintaining a tight grip on those within their own borders. What's more, because their economy and population are both so massive, they've been able to apply the same or similar limitations on non-Chinese companies and other entities by saying, more or less, do it our way or don't do business within our borders. This has led to a series of recent flare-ups between the Chinese government and entities within the world of sports, video gaming, and cartoons, among others, which I talked about recently in an episode entitled Soft Power. But it's also given China the ability to expand the size and influence of their chunk of the internet by making it financially smart by some metrics to do what the Chinese government says. Those who are willing to play ball, to adhere to China's rules may be able to outperform their competitors, who lack that same ideological flexibility, and who as a consequence will almost certainly lack access to that wealthy and just getting wealthier market. This could, with time, lead to a situation in which the most successful entities within any industry are those who are operating with the Chinese shard of the internet. And that means almost certainly that they will have to bend or change substantially either by building a Chinese-specific version of whatever it is they're selling, or, more simply, by adjusting all of what they offer worldwide to come into alignment with Beijing's preferences so that they don't have to fracture their catalog regionally. Russia has tried to play similar games with their own internet, having censored a great deal of what their citizenry can see, though they have proved thus far at least to be a little bit less capable than China in this regard. But they're not alone in this attempt. Dozens of other countries around the world are also building e-walls to defend their borders against information they don't like, that they think their people won't like, or which they think will prove a threat to their leadership or control. Turkey and India have figured out reliable ways to shut down the internet locally when it serves their purposes to do so, to have an information and communication blackout. Saudi Arabia and Iran and South Korea and Australia all ban some types of content with varying degrees of success and of various sorts, though most revolve around either censoring their political or ideological enemies, or blocking anything that could be construed as pornographic. Burma, Pakistan, Yemen, Tunisia, Vietnam, Syria, and Brazil also filter certain types of content from their local internet. This trend has expanded all the way back to the United States, where, although the dominant vibe is still that of techno-libertarianism, there's also a rumbling that some people want something more like what the EU is doing. Others want to do business with China and do not mind a little bit of censorship, especially about things that they don't think matter a whole lot to them and their industry, personally. Still others mostly just want to bring the big tech companies to heel. And the best way of doing that, through some lenses, is to take away the laissez-faire economic situation that they have thus far been enjoying, and to start regulating them like other companies of a similar scale are regulated In other industries. In some other countries, it's worth mentioning, the opposite is happening. Rather than taking stuff away, locals gain access to more than folks in other countries would have had access to. Some BBC content is not universally available outside the United Kingdom, for instance, while Norwegians have an abundance of free books available online, and the Norwegian government pays the licensing bill to ensure that continues to be the case. This type of limited access also splinters the internet, creating national boundaries within a space that was, once it had moved beyond its early military and academic borders, at least, originally meant to bring the world together into a shared space. This modern splinternet, though, whether we're talking about Russia post-independent internet law, wherein they decided they needed to have an isolated, completely independent internet they could cut off from the rest of the world almost immediately, for whatever reason or no reason, or Norway's impressive collection of freely available Norwegian-language ebooks seems to be taking us back to where we were before that dream started to play out, and before it did play out, to some degree, for the better part of a decade. Splinternet is a term that has emerged in popular writing about this subject, but the more popular terminology used in research papers on the subject refer to this trend as cyber-balkanization, a situation in which new borders are drawn, And because of the nature of those borders, and the people and groups that live within them, conflict is nearly inevitable. The consequences of this new alignment are many and varied. Nationalism tends to flourish more readily when people are no longer exposed to information that contradicts what they've been told by demagogues within their own borders, flogging a version of history and the present that satisfies the innate desire to feel important and better than those other people in other parts of the world. Those who spend their time within more liberal, in the philosophical sense, not the political sense, portions of the internet, are finding themselves more exposed to certain types of cyber attacks, very much including those that involve hacking people and perceptions rather than computers. Relatively locked down countries like Russia are now more capable of reaching across borders to manipulate elections in neighboring countries because their own elections remain secure partly because they're mostly for show at this point, but also because they've managed to lock down the same attack vectors within their own internet shard by doing the type of censorship that they do. And this gives them, and other countries doing similar things, the ability to block out information that they don't like and to utilize speech freedoms enjoyed by other shards as weapons against the people who are exposed to that free speech. Other, less authoritarian countries too are finding that they can manipulate conversation within and without by fining big tech companies that provide the biggest megaphones, legally coercing Facebook for instance to help a European government maintain control or smear their opponents, utilizing the reins of public policy and corporate regulation for personal gain. What's especially important to recognize here is that you need not be in China with their great firewall or Russia With their cross-border manipulation tactics to be splintering off chunks of the internet to use for your own purposes. This is something that is happening right now and it is happening across a wide variety of spheres of influence, very much including spheres controlled by ostensibly quite open and free governments. Some shards are being broken off to allow for fun freebies and increased access to social programs, Others are being broken off to keep citizenry safe, from child pornography and from instructions about how to build weapons at home, or the consequences of having those instructions available. Still others are hoping to keep their country safe from external threats, like cyber attacks that could shut down their national electrical grid, while others are being broken off to protect the current ruling class and the status quo that allows them to stay in power. It'll be interesting to see how metanational entities like Facebook influence this fracturing? Will they themselves splinter into multiple permutations, the way they arguably already do, with their variety of different offerings, especially on mobile devices around the world? Or will they help to lash some of these shards together into mega shards? Will some of these otherwise divided groups, in other words, be reunified, even if just loosely, not by organizations like NATO and the EU? but instead by corporations that through their practices and products create similar shared experiences across otherwise very different splinters of online space. We'll have to wait and see. This is a situation that is very much in flux right now. In the meantime, it's prudent to remember that the best of intentions for whatever kind of intention we might be talking about here can contribute to the balkanization of the internet in practically the same way as splintering it for personal, political, or military gain. And thus, there are plenty of incentives for this fracturing to continue unabated, and perhaps even more quickly than before, in the coming years. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Something Deeply Hidden, Quantum Worlds and the Emergence of Space-Time by Sean Carroll. Now this is the type of book for which it would be difficult to say anything too specific because the context is quantum stuff, but if you are curious to learn some of the fundamentals of how the scientific community is thinking about and looking at and working on quantum physics at the moment, This is a very good starting point. Sean Carroll is an excellent science communicator, and the book itself is very accessible, has a great pace, and is something that will no doubt teach you something about quantum physics and the way that we are thinking about it and working on it today as a species, whether you know a great deal about it already or whether you are coming into it completely blind. So if you're keen to learn something about that field, and it is very fascinating and interesting and awe-inspiring, and mind-boggling at times, consider picking up a copy of Something Deeply Hidden by Sean Carroll. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. If you're enjoying what I'm doing here on Let's Know Things, you might also enjoy another project of mine called Brain Lenses which is a weekly essay about the variables and forces that shape the way we think and the way that we see the world. You can subscribe to Brain Lenses for free at brainlenses.com if you are so inclined. Feel free also to reach out and say hello on social media. I am at Colin is my name on most of those, though it's just Colin Wright on Facebook. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.